All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome back to our study of Chrysostom's on marriage and family life, a series of homilies that he gives. We are in homily 20, which, of course, is based on Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. But before we get into his homily and do a bit of review, let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, to simply hit the high points of this homily up until the material that is New, of course, we have we have um, Chrysostom teaching on page forty-four that the love of husband and wife is the force that welds society together, and we talked about that how that stems from Adam and Eve and from the estate of the family, and given our fallen condition, then extends out into the to the other two of the three estates; those estates being the civil government and uh, the church and those in and of themselves being the two kingdoms. And so we have a nice framework here by which we can understand the three estates and the two kingdoms and all of that stemming from marriage. We focused, of course, on the female side, and that which is emphasized by St. Paul is then emphasized by Chrysostom, and that is, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Two points there, that as we look at uh, the role of, of husband and wife in marriage, and we try to de-romanticize, de-Disneyify our concepts of marriage, and we look at them as, as more like job descriptions, more like duties, more like this is what God would have you do, uh, irrespective of all these other things of like how it makes you feel or whether the other person deserves it or not, etc., etc. But like number one for the wife is to be submissive to the husband. We can always add in the caveat that where God commands and a husband forbids, or where God forbids and a husband commands, then we must obey God and not man. Obviously, that runs through all the vocations, that runs through all of life. But, aside from that, the art and duty of being a wife is submission to the husband. Okay, And we talked about how that uh, works in a remarkable way, that once a husband sees that and receives that, um, his response is not so much to domineer, but to turn in the best interest, uh, with the best interest in view toward his wife and family. And so he uh, becomes decreasingly selfish. That's the goal. Point two of this is that um, wives be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. And this is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures, especially Ephesians and Colossians, what are sometimes called the house toffle or house table texts. And that is that as we are living out our vocations, we are living them first and foremost to the Lord. So again, de-romanticizing, de-Disneyifying, because we simply say, this is my duty unto the Lord, irrespective of my spouse, irrespective of... Uh, my children or my parents and their worthiness, irrespective of whether I'm a slave or a master, 
I find myself within this economy, within this ordering in, in one way, shape, or form, in one vocation or another, and the, you know, my, my duties are in the first place to understand what my duties are, what God would have me do, and then to render those as, to, as serving the Lord. So to render those as obedience and duty unto Him, as opposed to, strictly speaking, the other people. So wonderfully freeing, wonderfully freeing, because we can serve our spouse whether they deserve it or not, our children whether they're grateful or not, our parents whether they're eccentric or not, our bosses whether they're domineering or not, our workers whether they're um, cheating or not. We can simply uh, be faithful to God in all things, and that is pleasing to Him. So wonderful, wonderful freedom. Now, on, on 46, again, as we just hit the high points coming up to the new material on 47, on 46, very top, um, Chrysostom reminds us that um, God has assigned a husband and wife each his proper place to the husband, one of leader and provider, and to the wife, one of submission. So now, just as St. Paul moves from the wife to the husband, so Chrysostom, and the husband here is to be the head, as Christ is the head of the church, to lay down his life. And this takes on two forms, to be a leader and provider. As a husband, you are called to lead your family, and if your family is in chaos, uh, you know, the, the bitter pill for you to own is that that's on you. There may be extenuating circumstances, but that's on you and your poor leadership. So we are called to lead. Of course, with leading, what comes along with that? Responsibility and blame when things go poorly. Uh, and, then, and then part of that leadership is to provide. So we spent some time talking about that. That is the husband's duty to provide for the family. And so in both of these ways, he is concretely laying down his life uh, and, then also, and then we talked about the absolute sense of that. If there's some sort of internal attack on the family, you know, in, I'm talking in, in terms of you know, the immediate locale. The husband is the one who goes and checks out if there's a bump in the night. He lays, he's willing to lay down his life for the family. Of course, if, if on a more corporate, large scale, um, there was an external threat of another country attacking our country or something, then... The, the husband is called to lay down his life uh, for the sake of his family and the families of all. And so this, this really constitutes what it means um, for a husband to lay down his life as Christ lays down his life for the church. This has gotten terribly distorted in our age, of course, where it's just basically become the exact opposite of what it should be to where husbands, like, you know, you'll hear counselors say, well, you know, to lay down your life means to, to basically become the, the maid of the house. It's like, uh, yeah, no, that's not what it means, actually. Um, it actually means to be the head, the leader, and the provider, um, to take care of the family's affairs externally, to put your life on the line for your family, and to have the tough skin to be able to deal with the external conflicts of, uh, that might threaten your family, your workplace, the world, whatever it may be, your nation. Okay, so um, the husband, too, is to render this service um, not to his wife or family because they have merited it or earned it or deserved it, but in service to God. 
And here there's a reciprocal nature too that Chrysostom points out in the middle of 46. Do you want your wife to be obedient to you as the church is to Christ? Then be responsible for the same providential care for her as Christ is for the church. So there's a little reciprocation there. Um, of course, we just run the danger of, um, with that kind of observation of, of, you have to do this, you're supposed to do this even if your wife isn't obedient to you. <laughs> you know, you, I, think, I think the, strictly speaking, the role is to please the Lord, not manipulate your spouse. That's maybe what I'm trying to say is, you want to please the Lord and do your duty irrespective of whether that makes your wife obedient to you or your husband loving towards you. We talked about how, uh, just hitting the deep water mark of how Paul refers to marriage as a mystery before the foundations of the world God has in mind Christ and his people, the two becoming one flesh and being married in the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's how you see the Bible and the book of Revelation end. It's how we'll see our history end is in this marriage between the Lamb and the saints, um, where the two become one. And so God, with that in mind, institutes the earthly estate of marriage in the Garden of Eden as a reflection of that more cosmic and deeper reality, beginning and, and ending of our cosmos. And so when we talk about the ideal of husband and wife, um, we are necessarily talking about that which comes before it, Christ and his bride, the church, and that which comes after it, Christ and his bride, the church. And so marriage properly understood then is to be sort of an icon and living icon, living parable of this deeper mystery and reality. All right. Any thoughts, any questions before we move on to page 47? All right. Let's pick up in the middle of 47 with that new paragraph. He gave himself up for her, this is Christ for the church, that he might cleanse and sanctify her. So the church was not pure. She had blemishes. She was ugly and cheap. Whatever kind of wife you marry, you will never take a bride like Christ did when he married the church. You will never marry anyone estranged from you as the church was from Christ. Despite all this, he did not abhor or hate her for her extraordinary corruption. Incredible line, isn't it? Incredible line. When we consider what Christ saw in the church and who the church was to Christ, you could not think of a worse possible spouse, a more unfaithful, ugly spouse. And yet Christ married her and put up with all in order to cleanse her and wash her and make her holy for all eternity. And so he's doing for us. And this, um, of course, this fills us with awe. This shows us why he's so hard on divorce. Because divorce betrays and, and destroys the icon of how he is with the church. He will never divorce the church. He desires that we all repent and be forgiven. So just beautiful. Beautiful line from Chrysostom. He continues, Do you want her corruption described? Paul says, For once you were in darkness. Quoting, uh, looks like Ephesians 5.8. 
Do you see how black she was? Nothing is blacker than darkness. Think of her shamelessness. She passed her day in malice and envy, Paul says. That's Titus 3.3. Look at her impurity. She was foolish and disobedient. Likewise, Titus 3. But what am I saying? She was foolish. Her tongue was evil. But even though her wounds were so numerous, he sacrificed himself for her in her corrupted state, as if she were in the bloom of youth, as if she were dearly beloved, and a wonderful beauty. St. Paul marveled at this and said, Why, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5. Though she was like this, Christ accepted her and made her beautiful. He washed her and did not hesitate even to sacrifice himself for her. Obviously very clear that we have the, the language of atonement here and the concept of sacrifice, Christ sacrificing himself in order to wash the church and make her what she is not, beautiful that is, and, uh, and so on. So just a beautiful, beautiful imagery. And this is why I sometimes in my teaching refer to the cross as, as, as the betrothal, as Jesus saying, I do, formally. And um, at the beginning of the formal marriage, he says, I do. And then there's expressions of that love that he declares once and for all on the cross. And those are the word and sacraments that we now experience. And there's a way in which that betrothal and that formal beginning of the marriage he began on the cross when he said, I do, comes to its culmination and completion and consummation in the new heavens and the new earth and the wedding feast of the Lamb of which Revelation speaks. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. There is a sense in which if we're going to express the same theology, we can do so, I think, without violence. We can express it like this, that God's love for man universally yeah. is that he desires to wed man. And even those who will, will have him not, he cares for, he provides for. This is Luther's point in the small catechism on give us this day our daily bread, that petition of the Lord's prayer that God gives, gives daily bread to all people, even to wicked people. We pray that God would leave us to, lead us to realize this and receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. That Every single time we put something in our mouth is an opportunity to relish in God's love and grace toward us and then to reflect on the fact that, hey, it's lunchtime. How many other millions of people are putting something in their mouth right now too? And that all comes from God's good and gracious hand, even, even to his enemies. So it really changes, really sacramentalizes in a sense, in a loose sense, every, every meal you have and your entire concept of the world and what's going on, the economy and bread on the table. So yes, in, in, broadest, sense, in broadest sense, God desires to wed man. The dwelling place of God is with man. That part of humanity that excludes itself, that deems itself unworthy of this marriage, unworthy of eternal life, and doesn't want it, 
um, the unbelievers, then they exclude themselves. They divorce God. They say no to his advances. They, di they divorce him and they won't have him. To not have life, to reject the one who is life is death. To reject the one who is, is light is darkness. But for all who do receive his love, for all who do entrust themselves to him and his faithful care, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. To entrust ourselves to his forgiveness and his steadfast love which endures forever. Then that constitutes the church. In a real sense, this is where, too, you can kind of see how the church is universal. It really is universal. It, because it's, you have to exclude yourself from the church. You have to say no. You have to say no to God, who is love. You have to say no to this great husband. Um, otherwise, it is simply for all human beings. And God, God, in a sense, just as his atonement is for the whole world, He's willing to marry the whole world. He says yes for his part to the whole world. And it's only those who are ultimately unfaithful and say, no, we, won't, we will not have it. Uh, only they exclude themselves. It's very much like, I mean, well, certainly parallel to Jesus' parable of the king who's throwing a wedding banquet for his son. And the only ones who, aren't, who, who don't come, it's not because they weren't invited, they don't come because they don't want to. I got better stuff to do. Yeah. yeah. So thanks for that, Bob. That's a great point. We don't want to. We don't want to slip into sort of some sort of narrow, limited atonement, Calvinistic approach here. Like God loves human beings, and <laughs> now I'm going to lose that. I'm going to lose that phrase. But it's like, oh gosh, I can't even remember who said it. This is terrible getting old. But, but we, we all reflect on, we can all reflect on how, you know, the, the world is great. It's just people that are the problem. And, you know, and, and it's, easy to, it's easy to love humanity, quote unquote, but as soon as you put a face on humanity and it's, you know, the, the person laying in the alley or, you know, who just stole your parking spot at Costco or whatever the case may be, all of a sudden you don't, you don't care uh, too much for them. And so I think, I think we can all be disgusted with our own humanity, with our own fallen nature. We can be disgusted with the humanity in, in others, with the humanity of the whole world too, and just the disaster we make of everything. The incredible thing is that while not denying those disgusting aspects in any way, shape, or form, while not, dis while not dismissing them or excusing them, God chooses to love us anyway and to, and to die. That, that's Paul's argument that from Romans 5, the Chrysostom quotes, like, you know, maybe you'd lay down your life for your buddy. Maybe you'd li lay down your life for this good or excellent guy. Maybe you'd see a king and say he would be worth dying for or something like this. But God shows his love in so much more that he looks at the scum of the earth, of which we are all part, and he says, yeah, for them. For them I'll shed my blood. So, I mean, viewed from this angle, the whole world and the whole cosmos, our entire history, can be seen as a love story. Can be seen as a love story. Okay. So, that takes us to uh, 48. Did we get into that next? I don't think we did. First full paragraph. That he might sanctify her, 
Okay, quoting scripture, talking about Christ and the church. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, we reflected on, how could that be anything but baptism? I mean, if it's just a washing with the word, you, you would still even kind of have enough for baptism, but it's a flat-out washing of water with the word. And that's exactly what, what Christians have art articulated since the very beginning is a baptism um, you know, as the creed says, one baptism for the remission of sins. The washing of water with the word. That he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. By the washing of water he washes away her impurities. With the word, he says. What word? Ah, look what he's doing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Chrysostom was a Lutheran. I mean, so was the entire early church. That's the... And he has not merely honored her, but he has presented her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Let us also then strive to attain this beauty and we shall be able to create it within ourselves. I mean, this is Romans 6, walk in newness of life. Or it's formula of concord um, on the free will. I think that's article 2. That we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in these new impulses. Don't expect your wife to have things that are beyond her power. Remember that the church received everything from her Lord's hands. By him, she was made glorious. By him, she was purified and freed from blemish. Don't turn your back on your wife because she is not beautiful. Uh, This is a great point. What is he doing here? He's He's saying, see your wife the way that Christ sees the church. And you can even find a tent. I mean, if your wife has been despicable to you, so, has, so have people been despicable to God. So has the church been despicable to Christ. So you see what he's inspiring you to? Love like God. Love like Christ. There's nothing humiliating or unworthy or shameful in this. In fact, in doing this very thing, you become like God. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? So this is really a brilliant section, especially for us as husbands, to really hone in on and focus in on. Because um, there, there may be many ways in which our, our wives are not beautiful in our eyes, whether that's physical or um, otherwise. Uh, here is the motivation that God would have um, for us to still treat them as Christ treats the church. So here, Chrysostom continues, listen to what Scripture says. The bee is small among flying creatures, but her product is the best of sweet things. And that actually comes from the apocryphal text, Sirach. But isn't that a great line? The bee is small among flying creatures, but her product is the best of sweet things. Your wife is God's creation. If you reproach her, you are not condemning her, but him who made her. Ah, here's an old trope. Um, But true enough, we have to be really careful in condemning a creature of any kind uh, because, well, lest you condemn the creator, the one who made that creature. And what's Chrysostom's point? That 
even in what is small and otherwise despised and appears nothing is the greatest sweetness. And so you may find the same in your spouse, uh, hidden to you at present. But you may find that she is like that bee, not much to look at, and yet from her will come uh, the sweetest of things. Your wife is God's creation. If you reproach her, you are not condemning her, but him who made her. What can the woman do about it? If your wife is beautiful, don't praise her for it. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, what a great line. What a great line. Because it's so counterintuitive. And it's so contrary to everything we've been taught. If your wife is beautiful, don't praise her for it. Why? She didn't earn being beautiful. It's a gift given. It's a gift given. He continues, praise, hatred, and even love based on outward beauty come from impure souls. Isn't that a contemplative line? Praise of outward beauty, hatred of outward beauty, or probably the lack thereof, and love based on outward beauty come from impure souls. We're not seeing things rightly. Seek beauty of soul and imitate the bridegroom of the church. There's this, there's this beautiful line. We, sh- we shy away from it as Lutherans, I think, ham-fistedly and like the drunken monk tilting way too far to the other side. But there's this beautiful line coming up in our text, our Old Testament text from 1 Samuel this Sunday. God does not see as a man sees. For man sees the outer appearance, but God sees the heart. We shouldn't shy away from that. That's in the selection of David. I mean, it's not as if God saw David and was like, oh, he's less of a sinner than the other ones. He, um, but he sees into the human heart. And, and so he seeks beauty of soul. And so the husband ought to, ought to seek beauty of soul as well. Seek beauty of soul and imitate the bridegroom of the church. Outward beauty is full of conceit, so arrogance, and licentiousness. Yeah, boy, in our culture, in our culture, we're so utterly distorted and brainwashed on this that very frequently what we mistake for external beauty is, um, is simply licentiousness. It's simply a, a kind of nod. If it, I mean, perhaps it's much more than a nod toward lust, but even then it's like, like the big, huge red lips caked with lipstick is a nod toward lust, the inflamed sort of uh, organs of the, of the mouth, of, of the affection, of the kiss. It's hard, to, it's hard to know how deeply we're brainwashed in our Western uh, culture of, it's almost Egyptian in the purity sense, in the idealized beauty sense. It's really creepy. Um, I mean, what's your reaction when you see a female without makeup? I mean, that, <laughs> that therein is a problem, frankly. It's a problem. Um, we just don't even see it because we don't see, uh, 
we don't see things normally. Um, so, yeah, this is really, really worth considering and thinking on. Outward beauty is full of conceit and licentiousness. And I think women and men are most guilty of this. Um, maybe women more universally so? I don't know. Uh, men, men tend to be like, when a man does it, we tend to be like, well, he's a peacock, or he's showing off, or he's peacocking, you know. He's kind of the guy wearing his fancy suit and doing, a, doing circles in the parking lot in his hot car, you know, like that kind of thing. He's showing off. Um, seems to stand out a little more, at least to me, but maybe I'm wrong on that. But when you think about it, what is it for? What is it for? And that's what, what is all this focus on outward beauty for? It makes men jealous and fills men with lustful thought. But does it give any pleasure? Perhaps for one or two months, or a year at most, but then no longer. I, this, is, this is actually a fascinating thing. Um, because, and maybe this is a little bit inside baseball for a Bible class, but whatever. We've got men listening, so they'll resonate. Women, if this offends you, you can talk to me about it after. Um, but if you, if you uh, talk to a guy who, who has, you know, in most men's perceptions, like a, a really, really attractive, physically attractive uh, girlfriend or wife, he doesn't think that much of her. He's already over it. It's just become common to him, an old hat to him. And that's, that's just the observation that um, Chrysostom is getting at is, you know, we in our consumeristic culture, and of course just at the root of it is, is male lust, you always, you always want and covet that which sparkles and flashes before the eye. Um, it's Satan doing his fishing with the fl flashy lure. You know, but as soon as, as, soon as, you've, as soon as you've got it, as soon as you've captured it, as, as Chrysostom so wisely says, it lasts like, like this infatuation. It lasts like, like a couple months or maybe a year if you're lucky, and then you realize, hey, even though she's attractive, you know, she's still a human being. <laughs> you know, there's, there's still times where she's uh, completely unattractive. So this is, this is his point. Again, he's leading us down the argument of, how, how external beauty is very often corrupted, is very often embellished precisely for the sake of corruption, creating conceit and licentiousness and making men jealous and filling men with lust. And then also, also um, so the man who finally lands the great catch, it's not that great. It doesn't last. The infatuation goes away. And in fact, this is some of the art and design of marriage is, you know, is, is pregnancy changes the woman's body <laughs> and sleepless nights change the <laughs> woman's body and caring for children changes the woman's body. And marriage binds a man to that and says, look, this is what you signed up for. This is the two becoming one flesh and you're now a family. So you don't get to look at your wife after she's, you know, had a few children and say, she's a shell of her former self. I'm moving on. You know, 
That's uh, marriage is that's part of marriage and its purpose and role in this fallen world where men are as fickle as they are. It's also why you know you know beauty beauty also yeah is a huge liability. I don't know if he makes that argument here or not. It's a liability because you're always concerned about someone else stealing what you have. And it's a liability for the person who has because if you ever lose it, you lose the number one quality. And also, if you've attracted someone who's attracted to you for your beauty, what's to say they wouldn't be attracted to something more beautiful? If that's the mechanism that drives their attraction and their commitment, then you, live, you as the beautiful one live always in fear that there's going to be someone more beautiful. And off, off your spouse will go. If you marry someone who's very beautiful, you worry always that off they'll go. <laughs> so it's a liability. I don't, I, again, I think Chrysostom, if he doesn't argue it in this sermon, he argues it somewhere else because I'm pretty much ripping it off from him. But it's all worth thinking about. It's all worth thinking about because this is the number one thing we think about, you know, in terms of young people looking for a spouse. And it's actually amongst the least important. Okay, well, back to Chrysostom. Praise, hatred, even love based on outward beauty come from impure souls. Seek beauty of soul and imitate the bridegroom of the church. Outward beauty is full of conceit and licentiousness. It makes men jealous and fills men with lustful thought. But does it give any pleasure? Perhaps for one or two months or a year at most, but then no longer. Familiarity causes admiration to fade. Meanwhile, the evils arising from outward beauty remain. Pride, foolishness, contempt of others. I mean, which are all things that make the soul what? Ugly. Ugly. This is why the things that we value most and strive most are spiritually speaking considered liabilities and great burdens. Physical attractiveness great wealth, you know, this kind of thing, um, power, high position, uh, clout and admiration. These are all the things we pursue and want and desire. But spiritually speaking, they're all the things that, that bring the greatest potential for harm to us. And they're the greatest liabilities. And to whom they are given, they must be managed with the utmost caution and care Otherwise, they quickly turn into terrible vices. And we see some of those here that, you know, with, with the physical beauty and attraction come then these great and deep lifelong vices. Isn't it true, too? Like, you see a beauty queen who's been worshipped for her beauty, and then she's way over the hill, and she still has that pride and arrogance demanding that she be worshipped. And, and you see the same thing in men, of course, if they're a famous movie star or athlete, and even if they're way over the hill. This is why men are constantly coming out of retirement to fight one more fight or play one more game or whatever else. It's, I mean, it's vanity, and their pride is so wrapped up in it. Pride, foolishness, contempt of others. However, Chrysostom continues, where outward beauty is of no concern, none of this is to be found. The love that began on honest grounds still continues ardently, since its object is beauty of the soul, not of the body. Just think, what is more beautiful than the sky full of stars? Describe 
any woman's body you choose, and still there is none so fair. Tell me about any eyes you like, yet none are so sparkling. When the stars were created, the very angels gazed in amazement, and we gaze with wonder now, but not with the same amazement as we did when we were children. This is what familiarity does. Things no longer strike us in their original intensity, how much more so in the case of a wife. And if by some chance disease comes too, then all is immediately lost. Look for affection, gentleness, and humility in a wife. These are the tokens of beauty. There's a line that's worth the price of the book, particularly if you're not married and you're seeking. Uh, this is written specifically to, um, to males. I th the flip, I'm sure, in some respects functions. But to keep it simple, if you're a young man and you're looking for a spouse and you're looking, of course, as a Christian man for Christian women, Look for a wife who is gentle and humble and affectionate. And I would add, pay careful attention to how she treats her parents. Pay careful attention to how she treats people who upset or offend her. <laughs> Because you can learn a great deal, a great deal about how your wife is going to treat you uh, when you upset or offend her. <laughs> or when you are in a position where it's your job to provide for and lay down your life for, as her parents uh, are. Okay, well, what does this do for women on the flip side? That these then become the virtues um, to, which, to which women can aspire. And again, this is a one-sided treatment, so be it. We'll go back and forth here with St. Paul and with Chrysostom. But, but women would aspire to be affectionate toward their husbands, gentle and humble. And even if their husbands don't seem attracted to that or you know, don't reciprocate in any sort of chivalrous or loving way, Christ-like way, uh, this is what God would have. Women to be affectionate, gentle, and humble. These are the tokens of beauty. So I think this is a great line. I think this is a great line for both sexes to pay attention to. All right, Chrysostom continues, but let us not seek lovely physical features, nor reproach her for lacking things over which she has no control. No, let us not reproach her for anything, or be impatient and solemn. Yeah, so the key there is, is identifying, you know, as the male wants to have compassion and gentleness toward his wife, to pay attention to those things over which she has no control and to grant grace and mercy there in particular. So let us not reproach her for anything or be impatient and sullen. Haven't you seen how many men living with beautiful wives have ended their lives in misery? And how many who have lived with those of no great beauty have lived to extreme old age with great enjoyment? Ah, yeah. It's just fantastic. I mean, look at Hollywood. 
All the beautiful people with all the money in the world, how happy are their marriages? How happy are their lives? How often do you hear of uh, one celebrity or another getting divorced yet again? Chrysostom continues, let us wipe off the quote-unquote spot and smooth the quote-unquote wrinkle that is within, as it is written. Let us do away with the blemishes that are on the soul. Such is the beauty God requires. Let us make her fair in God's sight, not in our own. And I think that is a great treatment, a great treatment. Because we know we don't save our wives as uh, Christ saves the church. Obviously. Obviously. But what then is the parallel? Well, Christ is nurturing his church into that beauty with which he already beholds her. And so too, then, this is the call to husbands. That you, you behold your wife as beautiful even as you design to make her fit what your eye already sees. Um, so let us make her fair in God's sight, not in our own. And there, I think, not in our fallen state, the way we look at it, but rather virtuous unto God. That's the role of husbands, to lift up their wives in that way. Okay. Any thoughts, any questions on that section? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. How are they supposed to do that? Yeah. Chrysostom doesn't give any examples as to the how, so I would be going out on a limb to suggest anything. But I think, I think as the aim is to, um, that the husband would try to uh, help his wife nurture those virtues of which Chrysostom has spoke, um, has written, affection, gentleness, and humility. So the how is probably easier said than done. I think in a lot of ways, though, it's what the man praises and what the man responds to. So if you, if you ever watch any reality shows about dating or anything like this, there's always this moment where it's like, well, what do you like about me or what do you love about me? This is always my favorite moment. It's always my favorite moment because what are two people what are two fallen human beings in a fallen world going to say to each other? And they, they say the stupidest things because there is nothing else to say but stupid things. Oh, I, I think you're really intelligent. I think you're really beautiful. Uh, you're, you're so driven. You know, like, oh, you've just got, you're perfectly imperfect. And all these cliches and stupid things. But, but try to come up with a better answer for yourself. There is no better answer. It's all entirely stupid. And, and why? Because there's no, there's no root or grounding there, either in the concept of reflecting what, what underlies this entire thing, which is Christ and his church, and thus there's no contemplation whatsoever of true beauty or the potential for true beauty, which takes on the form and shape of the virtues, which takes on the form and, and shape of sanctification. And it's, it's very difficult. I mean, it's very difficult. I think it would be, I think it would be much, more, much more honest if, if you were to use Chrysostom's language and say, you know, well, I, I cherish your humility. 
I see the way you interact with others and you're humble. I see that you're, you're gentle of spirit and you don't respond by flaming up in wrath and anger. Uh, I, cherish, I cherish that you're affectionate, um, that you show love and kindness in your person, in your words, in your touch, in your presence. Um, that kind of thing actually has substance and, origin <laughs> and originality to it. Uh, yeah, so this is what we're missing, and this is the sort of paradigm we have to discover. And again, Christ, Christ sees these things in us even when we don't have them. And he declares us to be righteous and lovable even when we're not. It's that line out of the hymn, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. And that, that then becomes the paradigm for us as spouses looking on one another is to, to, see, to see them as God intends for them to be. And to love them as if they were that, even as you're leading them into that. I mean, that's the goal. That's the goal. To see your husband as the man God intends him to be. And to not fault him for falling short. See your wife as the woman God intends her to be. And to not fault her for falling short. To forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And then to do whatever is in our power to cultivate that. The main ingredient of which is just grace and mercy and humility. All right. Well, a tall order, but at least it paints a positive view. A positive view. And a, and a view where you are identifying with Christ as you're trying to sort through marriage, which we all know is difficult. And the world tells us is difficult. And the world tells us if it's not working, just get out. And then it even becomes doom and gloom amongst Christians. I can't tell you how many Christians it's like, oh, you're too young to get married, or don't get married yet, or, ugh, marriage, yeah. Um, you know, or, or even sometimes I think we as pastors ham-fistedly treat this if we just say things like, marriage is a funeral. You know, well, okay, of course it is. I mean, <laughs> the two individuals are dying and becoming a new crea a creation. But in what way, but, but, but what positive ways can we talk about the new creation, the new creature, and then... Um, aiding one another on our way to heaven and beautifying one another in these virtues. It's a much more positive take. Okay, Chrysostom, bottom of 49. Let us not seek wealth nor high social position. These are external things. God doesn't care about any of this when you end up in heaven. So these are very, very temporary, very, very external things. If you're wise, they're not even really to be considered because they're here and then they're gone. And even when they're here, they bring all kinds of liability with them so that in the end, I'm pretty sure it all amounts to basically the same. Uh, you got more here and with it an extra dose of responsibility. You got less here and with it reprieve. Anyway, we all stand before the judgment seat of God in about five minutes, so none of this stuff matters. So not wealth, not high positions, high social position do we seek, but rather true nobility of soul. Right, this is where the whole like, theology of glory critique in this is just so poisonous because it, stri it seeks to strip all of us of this. And this is I mean, very much biblical, very much small c Catholic. This is very much the light and hope of our vocational relationships that we are pursuing nobility of soul. Let no one marry a woman for her money, 
such wealth is base and disgraceful. No, by no means let anyone aspire to get rich from his wife. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Here quoting 1 Timothy 6. Don't look for, a great, for great wealth in your wife, and you will find that everything else will go well. Who, tell me, would overlook the most important things to pay attention to secondary matters? And yet, to our sorrow, that is how we behave in practically every case. Yes, if we have a son, we worry about finding him a rich wife and not about how to develop in him a virtuous nature. We worry how he might acquire money, but not manners. Gosh, or I could say this for our own age. We, we worry how he might acquire money, but not godliness. If we engage in business, we don't think about how it might be free from sin, but how it might bring in the most profit. I mean, again, see how wicked this is. Money is everything now, and so everything has become corrupted and ruined because we are in possession by this passion for money. And what a great articulation of fleshing out of our Lord's words that you cannot serve God and mammon. You're going to love one or hate the other, obey one or obey the other. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Verse 28 of Ephesians 5. What does this mean? He is using a much stronger image and illustration now, much closer and plainer and much more demanding. Some might not be convinced by his previous illustration, saying, after all, he was Christ, and Christ is God naturally. He, would, or he, was, he is God naturally. He would sacrifice himself. Paul's method is different now. Yeah, and that is a common trope you get, um, that uh, kind of a cop-out for husbands is, you know, I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loves the church. Well, I'm not Christ. <laughs> okay, right, right, you're not. But that doesn't get you off the hook. Okay. Paul's method is different now. He says, Husbands should love their wives because such love is an obligation, not a favor. That's the key. It's an obligation, not a favor. Your own emotions or passions have zilch to do with your responsibility to love your wife. Your own feelings or thoughts her merit or worthiness has zilch to do. It's an obligation, not a favor. Marriage is a job, not, not a fairy tale. And this actually frees us in such beautiful and wonderful ways. But anyway, I digress. Chrysostom continues. So, husbands should love their wives because such love is an obligation, not a favor, as their own bodies. Why? For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. That is, he takes particular care of it. How is she his flesh? Listen, this at last is bone of my bones, said Adam, and flesh of my flesh. And also they become one flesh. Here quoting from Genesis 2, obviously. 
So he nourishes and cherishes his own flesh as Christ does the church. He returns here to his first comparison. Because we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. How is this true? Because Christ was born from our matter, just as Eve was fashioned from Adam's flesh. Paul does well here to speak of flesh and bones, for the Lord has exalted our material substance by partaking of it himself. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature, from Hebrews chapter 2. It is obvious that he shares our nature, but how do we share his? How are we members of his flesh? We are truly members of Christ because through him we were created, and we are truly members of his flesh because we are recreated by partaking of his mysteries. Those are his sacraments, obviously. There are some who affirm that he came by water and blood, but will not accept that the Holy Spirit enables us to share his same essence through baptism. Foolish heretics, how can the children who confess his truth and are born again in the water I mean, look how Chrysostom reads John 3, to be born again in the water. Not become his body. St. Paul explicitly says that we are members of his flesh and of his bones. Okay, so to be baptized into Christ is to become one with Christ. That's, that's roughly his point. Understand that Adam was fashioned from matter and Christ was born in the same. From Adam's side came the bearer of corruption, but from Christ's side came life. That's this business of the water and blood. And the water, blood, and spirit testifying comes from uh, 1 John. That imagery of Christ, Christ's side being pierced in the Gospel of John and outflowing water and blood, that which constitutes the, the church, his bride, his Eve, uh, the mother of all the truly living, those who have eternal life. And then as he gives up his spirit in John, he actually paradosuses his spirit, hands over and tra traditios his spirit, um, giving it over upon us, uh, to us. So, so from Adam's side came the bearer of corruption, but from Christ's side came life. Death blossomed in paradise, but was slain on the cross. The Son of God shares our nature so we can share His as He has us in Him, so we have Him in us. And now, how is Chrysostom going to connect this, obviously, that Christ has made Himself so one with us, then this becomes the model of husbands to wives, and so to love your wife is truly to love yourself. And if you love yourself, you love your wife, and so on and so forth. Um, she's everything you are, and uh, just as, as you're everything Christ is. So that then becomes the parallel. And we'll see the ways in which um, Chrysostom takes this. Uh, but we'll have to wait till next week to do it. The Lord be with you.